Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. Welcome to one of our final weeks here of 2020. Claire Zauke is gone this week. She is fortunately already on vacation. We're happy that Claire could take some time off. We are very fortunate to have a special guest panelist, Raphael Smith. He is our Climate Equity Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. Rafi, good to have you. What up with you, man, and what up, everybody? Good to be here. Great to have you. We'll talk a lot more uh, about some of the work that you're leading uh, in the show. But uh, first, we got to welcome our other panelist, Robert Craig, who's with us every week, our Executive Director. Robert, good to have you. Uh, good day, everyone, and uh, happy holidays to both our radio and digital audiences. So we are, because of the holidays, as Robert mentioned, we're recording a day early, so which means we're recording Wednesday morning. Um, and we have a number of things we're going to talk about. It's been, a, it's been a crazy week. Every week this year, we, I think I say that just about every week because it's um, amazing. Uh, but a lot has happened since we recorded in the last week. We'll talk about what's been happening in Congress around the uh, stimulus and, and, and relief for COVID. Um, we're also going to talk about, uh, uh, dive into a little bit more on the state budget with Rafi. Uh, we've been talking a lot about some of our healthcare requests. We have talked a bit about what we want in the Green New Deal in the state budget, but we're going to have a deeper dive in, in looking at that and what the state ought to be doing. We also connected to that. We're going to have a little news discussion around Foxconn, and we're going to be very fortunate to have a guest uh, and we're going to talk about healthcare workers uh, during the pandemic and what they have been experiencing and how they have been organizing uh, to create safer workplaces. But let's start by diving in with the latest news this week. And um, geez, as we record uh, in the last 24 hours, the uh, what had been a pretty intriguing congressional uh, uh, whole plan around trying to get coronavirus relief. Um, we thought we had a deal. Both uh, this uh, looked like it, you know, passes the House, Senate, you know, passes, passes both houses of Congress. They go home and late yesterday, President Trump throws a wild card in, goes on, releases a video and says basically that uh, the money, the relief checks are a joke and ridiculous, and uh, I can't remember the word, uh, but uh, it proposes that we ha ought to have at least $2,000 worth of relief checks. Robert, I'm going to start with you. This, it's been, it's been uh, an amazing turn here, but uh, Trump throws a wild card in. Uh, your thoughts, uh, less than 12 hours after this news. Well, let me start briefly on the, the vote from this torturous process six months late, where reportedly Senate Republicans decided to move, not because they cared about their constituents, but because their two Georgia colleagues needed it to hold their seats. And I do think it surprised a lot of people who have been oblivious to or didn't really care themselves about the callousness that the conservative movement has been showing for decades towards all the people, not themselves, showing the same callousness when they can't make their rent payment, right? Or their mortgage payment and are out of work. That this is a, that this is a lack of empathy. And so we have that. We had Democratic attempts to get a larger check than the $600 for individuals, by the way, 
overall, if you consider what the Fed is doing, this bailout has been much more of a bailout of corporations than of people, which tells you who has power in our country and gives a lie to the idea that we really have a, a you know, government by, of, and for the people. That's why we have to take it back. Uh, but we went through all that. Rod Johnson twice stood up, our, our, our Republican U.S. Senator, on procedural votes to prevent moving the, uh, the one-time payment to $1,200. And then when they have this meager deal, the entire Republican congressional delegation in Wisconsin voted against it. And we have override-proof majorities. So I, I often hark on how our Democratic Party, as reflected by the governor and the state legislative caucuses, is to the right of the Democratic National Party. Well, why is our Republican Party to the way right of even the way right National Republican Party? So it looked like it was done. Donald Trump has been AWOL really the whole time, but especially since the election, trying to steal it back through, I've been calling it proto-fascist, but fascist means now, trying to get the military to go impound the ballot boxes and the battleground states and do, do a rerun of some kind under military force. I don't know, sounds like a... And, and Robert, it is worth pointing out, this has all happened in the last week, right? The whole the yeah, discussions yeah. of... <laughs> uh, well, it's a fine legal team that uh, President so, Trump has. All of this, we forget this stuff so quickly, we're forgetting all sorts of scandals, like the scandal uh, last week that uh, Trump's administration was trying to promote infection, right? We've all forgotten that now because so much has gone on. It's, it's what happens in the carnival, right, of, uh, of, of Trump propaganda world. But then when it was finally done and they were talking about how you know, people will start getting checks as early as next week, uh, then Trump... Uh, held back from the White House staff. The White House staff didn't know the economic team was talking about when the checks would arrive. The White House economic team uh, last night, all of a sudden a video appears from Donald Trump declaring that this is a terrible uh, proposal and that he, and there's all sorts of pork in it, though he's actually talking to pork in the continuing resolution, not in the relief. But of course, the, he knows the public won't know that. He probably doesn't know that and demanding a $2,000 stimulus. So putting Ron Johnson and McConnell and the Georgia senators on, on the line, Purdue, Senator Purdue's running ads, taking credit for the great stimulus, the great relief plan, and Donald Trump is throwing cold water on it, the hero of his voters. So that's where we stand. Wall Street's ignoring him and going up as we record. So this, by the time you hear this, he may have completely backed down and gone back to, to, what, to, to his various attempts to steal the election. But at this point, it's all up in the air. Well, Rafi, I want to get your thoughts on this. And I know before the show we were chatting and uh, similar to this, right, you brought up just, this just highlights how Congress and even as whacked as the Republicans are, just Trump's Trump. Uh, he's operating on a completely different level, right? Like he doesn't even play by any of their rules, and, and this just seems to demonstrate it. Uh, your thoughts on this whole situation? In, in a way, Trump kind of embodies this era that we're in. He is a troll, right? I mean, a, and a troll really doesn't have anything to lose, right? They just they're there just to cause chaos, and that's exactly what. I mean, his whole presidency has been a, a troll on a on America. It's an excellent point. Yeah, but my issue is the party that, as a black person, like we gave, we overwhelmingly give the Democratic Party our vote, 
And when I go outside my house in my neighborhood, I look at the conditions. <laughs> and for them to be okay with $600 and not go down fighting tooth and nail for not just $2,000 uh, one-time payment, but this pandemic calls for something greater than that. We're talking about a $2,000 a month UBI. And for them to get outflanked by a troll, I think says a lot about where we are um, when it comes to the powers of the party. And I think it just, sometimes they are playing checkers and he's, and as a troll, you can do this. They, he's playing chess, right? Like that, that's what he, and he's constantly outflaking them. This has been a couple of times when he was able to get the perceived to be to the left of the Democratic Party. And until we really get courageous politicians that's going to really negotiate hard and fast, you know, you're going to be susceptible to trolls like Trump. No, you raise a really great point here because I think most of the spin coming out of this is the pressure, right, that this is going to put on not only those Republicans, Robert, that mentioned shamefully all, all of the Wisconsin Republicans voting against this, Ron Johnson, namely being his huge effort on Friday to reduce the checks when it looked like they might have been 1,200, but just this whole point that the troll, right, as you say, gets to outflank look more progressive than even the Democrats and, you know, completely blow up the Republicans. But you raise an excellent point here that, uh, that, that we ought to be concerned about, right? Like when he does this, it really does mess up uh, much broader than just saying, oh, that puts egg on the Republicans' face. Yeah, I just want to add, it's all performative. It's not real. <laughs> he doesn't believe it. But he, he, he's just playing at a different, you know, you know, when you have responsibility, you have to have you know, you got to be responsible, right? Well, he doesn't care about being responsible, so he can have a laissez-faire when it comes to the truth and trolling the, the American public. So, yeah. Robert, give you last thoughts before we run to break. I love Rossi's troll analogy, and I would just say that he's also playing in a different checker game. He's not trying to make legislation. Right. He's not trying at all. He's trying to make himself front and center. He doesn't care what happens to all the folks, the folks during the pandemic and during this depression for half the country. In fact, he's not capable of caring. He only cares about himself. He's an extreme narcissist. Yes. And so he's outflanking him because he has no involvement whatsoever. Then he sees the angle on how to get attention. It reminds me of P.T. Barnum putting out bad publicity about his circuses in order to get attention for his circuses, which confounded people at the time. Like, why would you do that? And he, he hid he was doing it because it got me, him more attention for his enterprise. And with that, as the director of the circus, I got to get us into a break. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. We've been talking about just the surreal week uh, that has played out around the COVID relief. Um, and it is worth pointing out that very nothing continues to happen in the state of Wisconsin. Robert mentioned that, you know, how is how our representatives compare nationally? Well, like, first of all, they're not even in the game in terms of, uh, this week, Governor Evers sent what he called a compromise package that he felt sort of fashioned where there might be compromise. And it was pretty much summer, 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 I can't speak today, pretty much tossed out 
right away by both uh, Republican leaders that uh, nothing will be happening on this and uh, just a lot more noise around uh, Evers inability to work with them, but uh, total dysfunction. Uh, and also one other thing that I want to uh, point out is we have talked, we talked last week about the Supreme court ruling. Uh, we have three Supreme court justices that have uh, been receiving horrendous emails, uh, anti-Semitic emails for both Karofsky and Dalit. Uh, Justice Hagerdorn, the conservative justice, uh, is now under police protection uh, because of uh, the threats uh, that he has been receiving. Uh, Robert, I know you wanted a couple of comments real quick on this. Just quickly, this is also the same week that it's reported that there was a plot by right-wing extremists, including some Wisconsin right-wing extremists, to take out the whole power grid for the United States. And the FBI was on to this and caught them, but the FBI again reiterated that the largest threat of violence in this country is from right-wing extremists. And this has been fomented by this president and by the current version of the Republican Party. And they also foment the idea that the violence is coming from the left, which Rafi may have an opinion on, and that it's folks protesting for basic civil rights that are the source of violence, when in fact, look, even, a, even Republicans in Georgia or, or Justice Hagedorn who do the right thing and follow the law are, are risk their lives right now and need extra protection. Yeah, and you saw this play out. Now, I want to make sure we're going to constantly, every time this happens, try to underscore this. Um, the treatment. You saw the disparate treatment uh, play out in Washington where you had white, white right-wing extremists kicking down the door of the uh, state uh, building and nothing, virtually nothing being done, right? And it is worth pointing out. Burning down, how, yeah, yeah. burning Black Lives Matter signs at the cross with no interference. And we know what would happen if yep. uh, folks of color were doing that to some sort of white-owned property. Yep. So again, we want to continue to talk about this, point this out, because there's been an effort to, you know, not only tarnish Black Lives Matter movement, but just in general as being a terrorist and organization, which is absurd. And we want to keep reminding everybody who the real terrorists are in this country. Uh, and we see we saw that play out this week. And uh, as it relates to our chief justice, our, our justices, also worth pointing out, former chief justice, um, uh, Shirley Abramson passed away this week. Um, quite, she was quite the historic figure. Um, but, but before we move on, I just want to make sure, Rafi, any other comments or Robert, any other thoughts on on this? Yeah, nothing. I, I mean, just as a, a a black person, I just watch how fragile we treat whiteness, and white pushback in this country. Now, you know, I mean, you brought up Washington. I was just thinking about that. But I mean, look at the stuff that happened in Michigan. Look at I mean, all over the country. I mean, you have malicious trading in uh, Montana, North Dakota, all the time, and it's never a spotlight or a push to to a to a, to actually, you know, bring that bring that to heal. I guess that would probably be the word, right phrase. I would, but it was like when it comes to black folks, right? And it's always the most punitive way. You, we can deal with folks is what, how we deal with folks, right? And I w wish <laughs> that uh, it was that same treatment to white 
extremists as it was to the perceived BLM. Because you know, you just look, you can look at any stats to show you that Black Lives Matter is not a terrorist group. That's just a a fiction of uh, Fox News and the right wing propaganda machine. <laughs> yep, and uh, it's absolutely right. Again, we're going to continue to try to highlight this uh, this this fact that continues to play out, you know, in, in our, in our media with that though. Um, I want it, Robert. I was just going to say one line. It's even worse than that because there were calls in the Trump administration to brand black lives matter, a terrorist organization and, and treat them appropriately, uh, appropriately if that was actually true. So the propaganda, they're trying to make it reality. They don't have the power yet, but they would, if they could. And, and one of this real quick thing, man. And then you get a jail, get out of jail free car. I mean, he just pardoned the Blackwater folks who was in Iraq slaughtering civilians, right? I mean, so if, yeah. if you do get some type of punishment, you got the whole system that will work to make ensure that you get the least punitive damages done to you, right? So, yeah, it's and, yeah, and a bunch of corrupt congressmen, including Duncan Hunter. I uh, I, I worked in a campaign against his father. But uh, unbelievable stuff, just stealing campaign money. And he's out. He has a get-out-of-jail-free card, Rafi, because he's a white guy connected to Trump. Well, and look, his pardons reveal what Rafi was talking about. This guy's operating at a different level, right? Like his, <laughs> the people he cares about, his associates, who he pardoned, right? Please. It was, we didn't even have time to get into that because we're going to move on to our next topic because we have to talk about we got to look forward. We always think it's very important on the show to be uh, talking about the kind of world we want. And uh, our state budget priorities are going to reflect that, and particularly around Green New Deal. And we're going to dive deeper into this. But before we do that, um, it is what ought to center this conversation, right, is this whole Foxconn debacle. We have been talking about Foxconn since the beginning. We had Jonathan Brostoff on like the week it was announced. And have been on this thing since the beginning as a ridiculous use of resources and have always from the beginning. In fact, I think we had a show that was about what would you do with $4 billion if you could invest that into green new deal jobs, right? New energy jobs. Well, we found out this week that, you know, at least $1.4 billion of public investment has already gone into this Foxconn debacle. And, you know, it begs the question, right? Like, what, what else should we have been doing? What could we have done with 1.4 billion, which then is a beautiful segue into like, what ought to we be, start be spending our money in this next state budget in this area? Uh, Robert, I'll kick to you and then Rafi, I wanna get your thoughts and I wanna dive deeper into discussions of that state budget. Robert and Rafi then. Well, I'm gonna, leave most of what we should be doing to Rafi, I, I, though I have opinions on it. I just want to say that as someone who waited eight hours to testify against Foxconn and said it would be awful, and we were out front barnstorming the state right away and have been on all along, all the major business leaders who are still quoted as economic experts who stood up and shilled for this and UW system leaders, and it goes on and on, uh, they, they're silent, crickets. It is, and we have Kathleen Gallagher, the report, uh, business reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, admitting she was wrong, which is great. Congratulations. She's a good reporter. We just disagree with her on this stuff and saying it is a 
thirty million. It is a a three thousand acre failing real estate project, and there's no way Foxconn itself will stay with a thirty million dollar annual property tax bill, which is required in order to make the financing work for us. Uh, all the magical numbers about how how it would pay for itself, and so we're in one point. Four billion, which could have been spent on direct jobs programs or green jobs programs. Remember, Scott Walker administration has given away over a billion dollars, and now the Republican legislature by not taking the Medicaid money, and over a billion dollars by giving huge corporate tax cuts with no strings attached. There's plenty of money, folks. Until you try to spend it on something that helps real people, if you want to give it to corporations. It's fine. And furthermore, this is still the economic strategy of WEDEC under a Democratic administration and of almost every local government that has economic development money across the state is still bribing companies to make jobs rather than investing directly in jobs. I mean, $1.5 billion could have been spent to pin people back to work. Right? It should have been. I could have, it should have been. Right. But this is like goes to King's whole idea about, I'm, probably going to butcher the, the quote, but it's uh, misspent uh, priorities. And we have an issue with this as a country, not just a state. And it, it, I don't know what it is. It's just, we just have a hard time. I mean, I, I know what it is. It's this right-wing ideology that believes that you, you have to deserve any type of investment and all this type of other Puritanian stuff that's connected to history. But yeah, we, I mean, if you just look at our history as a country, it was the point in time when we actually use federal uh, government funding to pit people back to work that we saw the greatest boom, right? I mean, just look at it. I mean, and I always hear the argument around how do we get the Reagan uh, Democrats back? Well, how did we get their grandfathers? How did we get their great grandfathers? It was by FDR investing in the people, right? Pitting money in and improving dividends. You never can bet on the American people and go wrong. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's silly that we even have a discussion. And the simple fact that we are having this discussion shows the the flaw and the the failure of the system. This is a this is a <laughs> this is as easy as it gets when it comes to economic policy. Well, we're gonna have to take a break here in a minute, but like, there's and we're gonna dive into talking about what ought to be. Um, and there's going to be a real opportunity here. Uh, President-elect Biden has made it very clear, I think there's going to be major investments uh, in Green New Deal, and there's going to be opportunities to start jump-starting this. But it also has to happen at the state. The state needs to pick up its role. We're going to talk more about that. What ought to be happening in the state budget? What does Governor Evers need to have in his state budget, which will be coming out around January 26th? We'll talk more about that next. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at Citizen Action, Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are going to follow up on our discussion there of Foxconn, right? And the whole idea that we could have spent $1.4 billion on something like Green New Deal jobs. And want to remind everyone, we got a state budget coming up, a biannual state budget. We've talked a lot about this. We've talked about health care. But we're going to dive deeper into our program around the state budget for trying to get Green New Deal ideas into the budget. We have a number of things that we are pushing uh, the governor, Governor Tony Evers, to put in his budget. 
Um, and one of those, Raphael, I want to kick it to you to tell us about because it's really important and you've been leading uh, our work here in Milwaukee around developing a climate action plan. Tell us about what the state ought to be doing, what Governor Evers needs in his budget around climate action plans and making sure that there's resources to make these things a reality. Yeah. Um, so I could, let me just start with uh, Milwaukee, but then I could go more broadly, right? So we have a city county task force here in Milwaukee, and the goal of this task force is to, uh, to create a comprehensive plan uh, around climate inequity, right? Now, ours are, this uh, climate action plan is attached to the international goals of 45% reduction in emissions by 2030 and 100% renewable energies, right? Um, so, but in order to make that transition, first you got to know your baseline numbers, right? And what, what kind of footprint you're actually leaving. And that's something that we've been able to get from the utility. But I think core and key to Milwaukee's climate action plan, I think to any climate action plan that uh, goes out should be an equity piece, right? So if we're going to really make a transition from carbon-based fuel energies to renewable energies, that's going to create jobs, right? I mean, that's going to create jobs in HVAC, that's going to be electricians, weatherizing uh, homes and, you know, countless, et cetera, et cetera, right? And this is, one of, we want to make sure at the key in the heart of it, that is a transitional jobs program that allows people entryways and pipelines into the private economy, but the government acting as uh, the first employer and trainer and skill, and again, folks skills to be prepared for the jobs of the future. If I'm correct, right, one of the critical things around these climate action plans is there needs to be some level of resources. And, and this is something where the state could potentially step in if I'm correct. Yeah, most definitely. Look, I think it's incumbent on the state and the governor, to, if we're really serious about uh, making an impact when it comes to not just uh, climate, but economically in the state, that funding for local climate action plans, like the one we have here in Milwaukee, has to be uh, essential to any of the, uh, the governor's budget, right? Uh, if we don't have funding for it, if we don't have that, we just kind of fall back into what we currently have and we have, and that's just untenable, right? We have 50% or near 50% black male employment here in Milwaukee and then there's just complete devastation period across the state when it comes to unemployment, underemployment. And this is one of the true mechanisms that we can uh, actually get people back to work at a large scale. So yeah, definitely funding for uh, uh, local climate action plans be definitely in the governor's budget. Robert? Yeah, I would just add to Rafi's excellent summary that this is really, you can think of two different approaches. The current approach, which are, is not being changed by Democratic administration or, or even proposed changes by Democrats in the legislature, where we don't do economic planning, where we hand out money to companies who are the experts in creating jobs, and, but that's not their goal. Jobs are an afterthought. Profit is the job. And we see it with Foxconn. They're happy to walk away from the $1.5 billion investment and leave us holding the bag and also leave Racine County holding the bag. I think Racine County has to go bankrupt. Uh, and, and this was, we, we and others warned at the time. So if you talk about Green New Deal, it's a metaphor. It's a new economy by comparison to an old economy, the New Deal. What the New Deal means to people is we go create the jobs. We make the investments. We decide what the priorities are. 
And that's what these local climate action plans are doing. This is a radical thing, if you think about it. Uh, in Milwaukee, Rafi's on the task force, so are two citizen action members. They're figuring out what kind of jobs you want to create and how we're going to meet the climate targets and who need who is denied employment needs access to it, which is predominantly black and brown people in the city of Milwaukee, though there are obviously some poor white people as well, but disproportionately black and brown. And so that's how you would achieve that. At a company that's not their goal, they're going to hire who's available and who's available and has the skills already and the privilege is going to be skewed towards the current economic disparities. And so this is a planning model and local governments are getting killed. They are not getting any relief. There's, they're not, there's nothing in the pandemic relief that passed the, the federal government because the Republicans won't allow it. It's deliberate sabotage of local government. So any money at the state level to help initiate these climate action plans, which I know Rafi will talk about is not just in Milwaukee, uh, would be very valuable right now to creating a whole new economy that we desperately need everywhere in the state of Wisconsin. Can I piggyback off that real quick? Absolutely. I think what Robert just laid out there is being intentional about how we actually govern ourselves, right? I think right now we're kind of like, it's like a coincidence or it's a happenstance, right? And when you're not intentional about how you govern, you just do it haphazardly, right? What we're talking about is being intentional about how we fund things, right? How we put people back to work, how we have a plan to do that, right? And I don't see anything that comes even close to climate action plans or the Green New Deal when it comes to intentionality and getting people back to work at scale. Um, this is our shot. This is our opportunity to do something big and bold. And I would hate to see it pass us by. Yeah. What you know, you said something great there intentionality, a plan. I want to get your comments on this. Uh, governor had a task force. Uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes played a leading role in this task force around climate. Um, we, and certainly you were very involved in, in, in getting insights into that. But, you know, look, they came out with some, some findings. And one of the things that they had in there is the idea that we ought to have utilities uh, mandate on bill financing. Uh, this is, speaking of getting to scale, this is a critical piece, I believe, Rafi. I'd like to get your comments on this because I think this ought to be a priority. This ought to be in the governor's budget. I mean, man, you can't get more of a slam dunk than on bill financing, really. If we just cut through everything, you know, look, it's, uh, let me give a quick summary of what it is, if I, you know. So it would allow the ut uh, homeowners and tenants to request energy upgrades to their homes, right? That the utility pays for upfront, and then the tenant or the homeowner pays monthly through their bill which will be lower than the original bill. So you not only are you paying off, right, the, 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 the debt you accrued to get the energy upgrade, but you're doing so at a lower rate than you were before. Like this is a, look again, this is a slam dunk. But what, why is it so important? It is the one of the key mechanisms to get to jobs at scale, right? Because at that point, once you get on bill financing, people will begin requesting um, the energy upgrades. Now who are, who's doing the energy upgrades? In a world that we imagine, that is people from the most marginalized communities, black and brown folks, our, our poor working class, white brothers and sisters up north, 
you know, that is who's going to be doing the regularizing of the homes. And that is one, I can't think of another thing at scale that can actually make a, a impact the way on bill financing can. Uh, it's like I said, it's a slam dunk. It, it should be easy. Okay. Bef before I go to Robert listeners, if you're keeping score, okay, that means you need to be calling the governor, contacting the governor. Now he needs to be funding climate action plans and he needs to put on bill financing into the budget. Robert Moore. And just to reiterate my before Robert goes, it's yep. in the, uh, the Lieutenant Governor's task force. Correct. Yeah, yeah. It's in the recommendations. We now need to get it in the governor's budget, which again, remind folks, January 26th is due. Robert? Yes, and Lieutenant Governor Barnes, a citizen action member, told us that he doesn't know what parts of the plan governor will put in the budget or not. So governor needs to hear from people. But just to add quickly to what Rafi said, renewable energy, energy efficiency, conservation, it saves money. The question, we don't actually have to spend money in a lot of ways to do it, and you could have create tons of jobs doing it. And then we haven't even talked about commercial sector, which you could do the same thing with. But And so what needs is a financing mechanism. And so that's why the utilities can pay up front, and your bill goes down, and then you pay over time. And so it only works because it saves money. It's not actually a government expenditure at all. And so, the, but utilities don't want to do it because their business model is to sell coal power and to pay off huge amounts of loans or capital investments on big coal power plants. And so we need to push through that. They'll be opponents. And so we need people to stand up to that. But we can fund a huge part of the Green New Deal with in a tight state budget through on-bill financing if it was mandated. And with that, we are going to have to wrap up this segment, but look, there's a lot and we have some more things uh, that we're pushing for in the state budget. We're going to continue to talk more about this on future shows uh, about around this issue, but we have got to take a break. And when we come back, we do have a special guest. We're going to be joined by Alice Herman. Alice is a fellow and a journalist within these times. And we're going to talk about healthcare workers and what they're facing in the time of COVID. And there may be a bubbling organizing movement coming in the healthcare industry because of COVID, but we'll talk more with Alice Herman right after this break. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We are really happy to have a special guest. We are joined by Alice Herman. Alice is a fellow, a Goodman fellow within these times, which is a fantastic magazine. Alice, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, the, we're, we're thrilled to have you. And the reason we're having you today is because you wrote an amazing article um, about what is happening with healthcare workers, particularly uh, in hospitals and a number of our acute care facilities, nursing homes around the country in this time of COVID, both what they're experiencing professionally, but also how it's leading to a surge in activism. Tell us more, tell our listeners more about uh, what you wrote about and what are some of the key findings and things that you found? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there are sort of two parts to this story. Um, one is that, you know, obviously healthcare workers are being affected incredibly acutely during COVID. Um, and, you know, the uh, National Nurses United has been tracking uh, healthcare worker deaths and so has um, 
Kaiser Health News and The Guardian. Um, and their numbers, which at this point are around 3,000, are like orders of magnitude higher than what the United States is reporting. So, um, so you have this incredibly heavy toll on healthcare workers and um, in kind of deteriorating workplace conditions and also just a, a, a high volume of deaths of patients, which is also creating like a lot of trauma for, for workers. And then, um, and then in response, you see, I guess, just kind of an, an, an uptick in interest in organizing and in labor actions during this period, um, which, yeah, which, which you can track in a couple of different ways. Um, and so those, those are kind of the two, those are sort of the two main lines that I was following in my research. Um, but there's a lot, there's a lot more to talk about, I think. I, I'll just say I was struck by just the shock, this, the similarities and comparisons to other industries and what other workers are experiencing. And that you would think, right, given all of the, these are our healthcare heroes. These are the people that are out on the front line uh, in this battle against COVID. Um, we hear some of the same rhetoric, whether, you know, for grocery store workers, meat packers, but completely hollow in terms of what they're actually experiencing in terms of how they're being treated in the workplace. Um, tell us more about what you found in terms of the uptick in action, organizing, and activities of workers speaking back. And let's just say this is an industry where they are not known to do that because of the relationship between patients and them. And they are very uh, not likely to come out and speak out often uh, in these ways. So this is unique what you found. Yeah, it is unique. Yeah, I think that's like exactly the question is why is that happening right now? And I think like for a lot of healthcare workers, and this has come up in almost every interview I've had with um, people with all different kinds of jobs and hospitals and other kinds of facilities is that people see their jobs as a vocation, right? As sort of a calling, as more than a job. Um, and then Corona happens and all of a sudden people are going to work and they're being given like plastic bags and told, okay, like here's your mask for the week. Right. And so I think there's like some consciousness that's that's happening right now around like oh you know this this is my job and this is what this is how my employer actually values me um or doesn't and um and then yeah the the language around healthcare heroes came up it, countless times in interviews that I had um just because of the the hypocrisy of it it it's been in other reporting in other industries is we not only have the failure to protect people, both by these employers, and a lot of these are charitable institutions, allegedly, that are tax exempt and have this sterling reputation of the community, but they're not really protecting. They're, they're putting up signs about heroes, but they're not treating them like heroes. Uh, but then the government, part of the conspiracy, the government's not protecting them, is to hide the data by not collecting it. And then journalists like you, need to put it together or people like unions or journalists like the, the folks at the guardian. And so that's part of the conspiracy is trying to keep it under wraps. So people don't know about it. And the government seems to me complicit in that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's not, there, there's no mechanism for enforcing reporting um, around COVID cases, outbreaks and deaths in hospitals and, and other healthcare facilities, which, um, 
you know, enables employers to, to do exactly that, to um, either obfuscate or straight up lie about cases in hospitals. And then an issue that's like, that's related to this point is that even within a facility, uh, employers management won't tell workers when, you know, they've been exposed and they can cite kind of, you, they can cite like privacy law, but, um, but they're not even telling them if they've been exposed. Uh, so, which then obviously exacerbates uh, outbreaks when they do happen. Um, and again, because there's no enforcement mechanism for reporting or for, you know, keeping, keeping workers safe in that particular way, it's just not happening. Rafi? I'm wondering in your work, have you seen uh, a different treatment when it comes to class and race within this industry? Um, yeah. Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so within, like within a hospital, and I haven't followed this with vaccines. I don't, I guess I'm not sure how it's going to play out, although we could probably predict how it will play out. Um, but within, within hospitals, nurses, you know, there's this, there, there is this class and race hierarchy um, within job positions and hospitals and protection, worker protections reflect that. Um, pretty much to a T. So in, uh, at the University of Chicago, there's actually um, a pretty massive strike recently that was led by, mostly by workers of color outside of, you know, the nursing profession. Um, and what they were demanding was literally that the hospital pay them minimum wage, like the, the, the wage that they were legally obligated to pay them. So yeah, so I think that I think that race and class are reflected really, really, really apparently during in in hospitals, um, and I think that COVID, you know, has kind of reflected that even more immediately. Yeah, I remember when I was uh, organizing home healthcare workers, it was this clear distinction between and tr- like even support around you know, PCW workers making $10 an hour, right? And how they were looked at and then like how nurses were looking and was, look, I mean, uh, PCW does seven to 10 jobs in one, right? And they were getting paid $10 for it. So they, I, you, know, you see this uh, this class and this racial uh, distinctions that, uh, you know, happens in our, our wider community happen within this sector too. Uh, really? It's just, uh, yeah, we just keep on seeing that cycle repeated. Yeah, something that, I mean, I saw a headline in the Times pretty recently about how um, home care workers were, you know, it's something along the lines of home care workers are, are bringing COVID into these facilities. Um, and then you read the article and it's because they have to work three different jobs. Um, and so they're actually, you know, hyper exposed and more likely to, to contract COVID themselves. Um, so, yeah. And not to mention the mental impact of watching people that you care for over a extended period of time pass away from this disease. And I wonder if there's any help around uh, mental health for these. Yeah. Yeah. No, mental health is a huge issue. I was, yeah, I was listening to an interview the other day with somebody from uh, UW hospital, just talking about how, you know, seeing so many patients die. And then also the fact that the disease is a lot like it, 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 like they'll be in the hospital for three weeks and kind of get to know the person. Um, so I, yeah, mental, the, the toll on, on mental health 
of, of workers right now is pretty incredible. And then um, you get to the fact that, you know, it's very hard to unionize in this sector, any sector in the United States, but there are all these barriers and that workers who have nowhere to turn with their employer, the government are increasingly turning to collective action and more of them are seeking unions. So if you talk, I know we have a couple minutes left, what you discovered about that, that's very important information. Yeah, so um, it, it's kind of hard to track this because most of the labor actions that have happened over the last couple of months or last almost year at this point have not been in the form of, you know, of, of strikes that are being tracked by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, instead, they're more informal, spontaneous labor actions. But um, the number of complaints that have been filed to the NLRB alleging that employers have illegally shut down um, protected concerted activity has gone up uh, pretty dramatically this year. So that's one, one way to follow it. Yeah, and I, I'll, I'll say similar to Rafi as a former uh, healthcare worker organizer, I am not surprised uh, that we're seeing this. Uh, this is an industry that has been run um, for profit for a long time, whether you're in a nonprofit or for-profit sector. And so I am not shocked at all that COVID has uh, really brought this to life and that we're going to potentially see a whole bunch of more organizing that comes out of this. And uh, I want to thank you, Alice, for joining us and bringing and for writing this article and bringing this to life. Um, and because uh, it's a critical issue. Uh, and uh, these healthcare workers uh, need a voice on their job. Our health depends upon it. And I think we all have a deeper appreciation uh, for that. Uh, thank you so much, Alice. Thank you so much. So with that, we have got to wrap up this Battleground Wisconsin podcast. We want to thank Alice Herman for joining us. And again, check out her article in In These Times. And of course, want to thank Raphael Smith, our guest panelist, who I'm sure we'll see and have more from Rafi in the future. But with that, we'll see you next week. Battleground, Wisconsin, have a great holiday week.